Good afternoon, I'm Fred Kemp, President and CEO of the Atlantic Council, and this is, uh, this is a significant day at the Atlantic Council. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you to the launch of two reports on the war in Ukraine, our own uh, hiding in plain sight, uh, Putin's war in Ukraine, and then the exclusive English language release of Boris Nemtsov's uh, Putin's War. And so uh, we look forward to rolling out both of these reports for you today, which I think when you take them together um, will uh, ensure that Putin's secret war in Ukraine, or at least secret among some, is no longer secret. I want to offer a special welcome to our audience watching, watching online, especially those in Ukraine and Russia, who've tuned into our live uh, website or webcast at night. Uh, I encourage everyone to join our conversation on Twitter uh, using the hashtag, uh, hashtag Putin at war. Uh, we will be hearing remarks both in English and in Russian today. Uh, for those in the uh, audience here at the Atlantic Council, uh, turn your headsets to channel two for English and to uh, channel one uh, for Russian. Uh, at the Atlantic Council, we are acutely aware that the ongoing war in Ukraine's east is not just about Ukraine. It's about the global order, it's about the future of Europe whole and free, and it's about the future of Russia itself. The men and women on the front lines of Ukraine are not just defending themselves, they are defending the rules of international engagement that have delivered security and stability in Europe uh, since the end of the Cold War. That's why in February 2014, the Council launched its Ukraine in Europe initiative. This initiative galvanizes international support for an independent Ukraine that chooses its own destiny within secure borders whose people, uh, within secure borders. The Council's work aims to strengthen Ukraine's security, preserve its territorial integrity, and advance democratic, economic, and governance reforms. Um, I'd first like to recognize those who have supported this initiative from the start. George Chapivsky and the Chapivsky Family Foundation, Ambassador Julie Finley, Frontera Resources, Ian Inotovich and Marta Witter, Lena Kosharny and Horizon Capital, James Temerity, the Smith Richardson Foundation, George Lund, who helped us gain support from throughout the Atlantic Council Board, and the Ukraine World Congress, led by President Eugene Cholai, and uh, Vice President Paul Grodd. And Paul, it's great to have you here today from Canada. Um, against the backdrop of this mission, our conversation today focuses on a central question in the Ukraine crisis, and that is the Kremlin's role in the conflict. Uh, these reports, uh, taken together, argue that the war's toll more than 6,000 dead, tens of thousands wounded, and nearly 1.3 million displaced persons are the direct result of Vladimir Putin's decisions and actions. Since the beginning of the crisis, the Kremlin has been waging a highly sophisticated hybrid war involving subversion, Russian leadership of armed groups, Russian weapons, Russian money, Russian propaganda, and regular Russian troops. All the while, Vladimir Putin insists that Russia is not involved in the conflict in Ukraine. Some take this claim at face value. Many hear contradictory information and don't know what is true. 
The purpose of these reports is to shed light on this deception. The reports were produced independently of each other, but reached the same conclusions, and that is Putin's Russia is at war with Ukraine. The Atlantic Council report hiding in plain sight, Putin's war in Ukraine provides evidence exposing Russia's military involvement in Ukraine's east, drawing on publicly available information. It chronicles the full spectrum of the Kremlin's war in Ukraine. Uh, in Ukraine's east, drawing on publicly available information, it chronicles the full spectrum of the Kremlin's war in Ukraine using open source investigative techniques. It reveals how Russia's military equipment moves into Ukraine, where training camps have been built on the border, and pinpoints the Russian origins of cross-border artillery attacks on Ukraine territory. Uh, as Michael Gordon wrote about the report in this morning's New York Times, quote, and this is from Michael Gordon's piece, in an attempt to puncture the Russian denials, independent experts have operated like digital Sherlock Holmeses, uh, using Google Street View, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, satellite photographs, and Russia's version of Facebook, including social media updates by Russian soldiers. That research was then supplemented by more traditional sources like court documents and local media reports. The analysis in the report uses innovative social media forensics and geolocation methodology, pioneered by one of the co-authors of the report, Elliot Higgins. Elliot couldn't join us in person today, but we'll see him on video. The report was the direct result of a collaborative effort between the Atlantic Council's Executive Vice President, uh, Damon Wilson, Dinu Patricio Eurasia Center Director, Ambassador John Herbst, Associate Director Alina Polyakova, and my own special assistant, Max Chupersky. Very proud of your work on this, Max. As, as well as over a dozen volunteer researchers and interns who spent hours fact-checking the report. And we'll hear from the, uh, the co-authors momentarily. It's a great privilege to also be joined by the team that gathered Boris Nemtsov's evidence of Putin's war in Ukraine after the opposition leader was slain in view of the Kremlin on February 27th, 2015, and anybody who spent time in Moscow knows exactly the spot on the bridge where that took place. At great risk to their own freedom and livelihood, the team tracked down what was left of Mr. Nemtsov's report and published it in Moscow two weeks ago. Today, we honor Mr. Nemtsov's legacy with the release of the official English version of Putin's war. On June 12th, we will honor Boris Nemtsov again, and the memory of Boris Nemtsov, with an Atlantic Council Freedom Award at the Wrocław Global Forum in Poland, and that award will be presented by Gary Kasparov. Two of the report's authors and opposition leaders, Ilya Yashin and Leonid Matenuk, uh, traveled from Russia to be with us here today, and we're delighted to have them here. Thank you so much for making the trip, and we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, before I invite them to the stage to present the report, though, I do want to read just the first couple of lines uh, from the foreword that Damon and I wrote for the report, because this is so important, because what can sometimes be misunderstood when we take on these issues is that somehow this is anti-Russian, or somehow we're doing this against Russia. Let me read the two lines. For 25 years, prominent members of the Atlantic Council community have worked to advance the vision of a Europe whole, free, and at peace in which Russia enjoys its peaceful place. 
In fact, many in our community aspired not only for a strategic partnership with Russia, but envisioned an alliance between Russia and NATO contributing to international stability and security. And that remains the vision of many of us at the Atlantic Council as a medium-term and long-term goal. Unfortunately, Russian President Vladimir Putin's actions in Ukraine today mock this vision and threaten the international order established at the end of the Cold War. So we do this work not against Russia, but actually for the international community, for a Europe-Poland priest, for Ukraine, and ultimately also for Russia. With that, let me pass the floor to Mr. Yashin and Mr. Martinuk. Здравствуйте, уважаемые друзья. Приятно вас всех видеть. Спасибо, что вы здесь собрались. Я, с вашего позволения, хотел бы начать с тревожных новостей из Москвы. Перед тем, как рассказать о докладе, который мы подготовили, который имеет честь вас представить, я хотел бы рассказать о том, что в Москве в очень тяжелом состоянии сейчас находится наш с Леонидом товарищ, наш друг, Владимир Карамурза, его тело отравлено, его органы перестали работать, он сейчас находится в медикаментозном сне, и у нас есть все основания подозревать в том, что Владимир был отравлен. Владимир один из наиболее активных российских оппозиционеров, он долгое время жил в Соединенных Штатах, сейчас вернулся, вот буквально полгода назад он вернулся в Россию и очень активно включился в оппозиционную политику. Он стал членом Федерального бюро нашей партии. Он занимается электоральными проектами в организации Михаила Ходорковского. И, судя по всему, он был отравлен. Зловещая деталь заключается в том, что Владимир Крамурза оказался в госпитале в день убийства Бориса Немцова спустя ровно три месяца. Символизм этой даты поражает. Я хочу рассказать об этой истории для того, чтобы привлечь внимание к судьбе Владимира. Мы все желаем ему здоровья, надеемся, что он поправится, хотя он находится в крайне тяжелом состоянии. Мне бы очень хотелось, я думаю, что Леонид со мной согласится, чтобы этот эпизод не остался незамеченным не только в России, но и в мире. Три месяца назад не стало нашего товарища Бориса Немцова. Немцов был одним из самых ярких российских оппозиционеров, Немцов был одним из самых харизматичных российских политиков, и Немцов был большим российским патриотом. В то же время Немцов очень искренне, совершенно бескорыстно любил Украину. Он любил этот народ, любил эту культуру, любил этот язык. Немцов переживал как личную трагедию ту кровавую авантюру, ту бойню, в которую Путин втравил наши страны. Немцов был человеком мира, и он искал пути, как восстановить нормальные отношения между нашими странами. Немцов хотел рассказать российскому обществу об этой преступной, циничной, хотя и не объявленной войне. 
Именно так родилась идея доклада «Путин-война». Незадолго до смерти Немцов начал работать над этим докладом, у него появились свои источники, он составил план этого доклада и активно приступил к его работе. Закончить эту работу он не успел. 27 февраля 2015 года он был застрелен буквально у стен Кремля, в 100 метрах от Кремля, от резиденции Владимира Путина. Ему стреляли в спину, и до сих пор ни заказчики, ни организаторы не найдены и не установлены. Мы прекрасно понимаем, пока Путин находится в Кремле, заказчики этого преступления будут на свободе. Нам бы очень хотелось, чтобы то дело, за которое Немцов боролся, за которое Немцов отдал свою жизнь, было продолжено. Именно поэтому все силы после гибели Немцова мы бросили на то, чтобы закончить его работу и довести до конца его идею с публикацией доклада «Путин-война». В докладе собраны исчерпывающие доказательства присутствия на Украине, на территории Украины российских войск. В докладе собраны исчерпывающие доказательства того, что на протяжении всего этого года Путин последовательно врал российскому обществу о том, что на Донбассе нет российских войск. Самая легкая для нас глава – это глава, посвященная Крыму. Я напомню, что еще в марте 2014 года, когда началась операция в Крыму, операция по присоединению Крыма к России, Путин говорил российскому обществу о том, что там действуют силы местной самообороны, что российская армия не имеет к этому никакого отношения. Простите, говорили Путину, но ведь у них форма российских военных, хотя и без опознавательных знаков. И Путин говорил, ну, наверное, купили в магазине. Спустя год... Риторика Путина изменилась кардинальным образом. Путин прямо признал, это был российский армейский спецназ. Это была военная операция, которую руководил и командовал лично Владимир Путин. Эта информация прозвучала в эфире государственного телевидения России. Путин прямо признал это. Глава крупнейшего в мире государства, в руках которого сосредоточен ядерный потенциал, публично врет своему народу и всему миру. И мы хотим донести это до российского общества, хотим обратить внимание на это. Ведь если Путин врал здесь, он будет врать и дальше. Мы хотим рассказать российскому обществу, о том, что Россия растоптала, Кремль, Путин растоптал международные обязательства нашей страны. Ведь Россия взяла на себя обязательство быть гарантом территориальной целостности Украины. Украина, кстати, заплатила за это немалую цену, мало кто помнит об этом. В рамках Будапешского меморандума 
Украина отказалась от статуса ядерной державы. Логика этого решения наших соседей была понятна. Зачем нужно ядерное оружие, если на Востоке есть огромный могущественный сосед, в любой момент готовый прийти тебе на помощь? Путин уничтожил репутацию моей страны, нанеся украинцам удар в спину. Это подлая и циничная война. Нету в мире более близкого и родного народа для русских, чем украинский народ. И то, что Путин ударил в спину, это позор нашей страны. Путин говорит о том, что на территории Украины нет российских войск. Мы собрали многочисленные свидетельства российских военнослужащих, которые принимали непосредственное участие в боевых действиях. Я приведу несколько примеров. Вот этот молодой парень, это российский десантник Николай Козлов. В марте 2014 года он принимал личное участие в блокировании объектов на территории Крыма в рамках Крымской операции. Причем, будучи российским военнослужащим, он участвовал в крымской кампании в форме украинского милиционера. Здесь представлена эта фотография. После присоединения, после аннексии Крыма, Козлов вернулся домой, в Ульяновск, где получил медаль за возвращение Крыма. Вот она у него на груди. Он успел жениться, успел сходить в отпуск. А в августе 2014 года он снова оказался на территории Украины. Будучи мобилизованным в одном из отрядов, он участвовал в подавлении артиллерийских точек украинской армии. Он попал под обстрел. Он был ранен. Ему ампутировали ногу. Сейчас он инвалид. Эту информацию мы получили благодаря гражданской позиции дяди Николая Козлова Сергея который рассказал о судьбе своего родственника и предоставил фотографии. Другой пример. Российский танкист из Бурятии, Даржи Бутамункуев. Он также принимал активное участие в боевых действиях, в частности под Дебальцево. Был очень серьезно ранен, обгорел. Из представленного фотография в Донецком госпитале. Это действующий российский военнослужащий. Он прямо признает свое участие в боевых действиях. Одна из важных глав посвящена участию российского, российской военной техники в боевых действиях. Вы знаете, что позиция сепаратистов заключается в следующем. Вся техника, которая используется против украинской армии, это трофейная техника, которую удалось заполучить в боях. Это вранье. 
Однако опровергнуть это вранье довольно сложно, потому что зачастую на вооружении украинской и российской армии одни и те же образцы военной техники. Однако есть и исключения, которые позволили уличить во вранье сепаратистов и Кремль. В частности, мы проанализировали текст Минских соглашений, который был подписан Путиным, Порошенко в, при, во время мирных переговоров. В тексте Минских мирных соглашений прямо упоминается за подписью Путина система «Торнадо-С». Это военная техника эксклюзивного российского производства, которая никогда не поставлялась на экспорт. В мире есть единственная страна, на вооружении которой есть система «Торнадо-С». Это Россия. Подписывая мирные соглашения, в рамках которых было указано, что система «Торнадо-С» должна быть отведена из зоны боевых действий на подконтрольной сепаратистам территории, Путин фактически, документально признал передачу этой системы в распоряжении сепаратистов. Есть и другой пример. Речь идет о комплексе «Панцирь-С-1». Ракетно-пушечный комплекс российского производства, который поставлялся на экспорт. Однако только одна страна, на вооружении которой есть такой комплекс, граничит с Украиной. Это Россия. На протяжении долгого времени сепаратисты опровергали присутствие в их распоряжении комплекса Торнадо-С. Э, простите, панцирь С-1. Однако нам удалось распечатать в докладе скриншот с видеорегистратора, где этот Комплекс зафиксирован буквально под билбордом с лицами лидеров сепаратистов, лидерами Луганской и Донецкой народных республик. Какие еще нужны доказательства? Мы сделали этот доклад, потому что мы патриоты России. Наша цель — защита национальных интересов России. Мы считаем, что война, развязанная Путиным на территории Украины, наносит огромный ущерб нашей стране. И политический ущерб, и экономический ущерб, и моральный ущерб. Это война, позор России. Поэтому мы, как российские патриоты, добиваемся того, чтобы эта война остановилась. И наша задача опровергнуть вранье Путина и донести всю эту информацию до российского общества. Однако нам также очень важно чтобы внимание к этой войне было приковано и в мире. Спасибо. Леонид Мартынев. Еще в конце 2014 года Борис Немцов обратил внимание на два интересных факта. Согласно опросам населения, Большинство россиян считает, что Россия не должна участвовать военным образом в конфликте на Донбассе. С другой стороны, большинство россиян считает, что нет никаких российских войск на Донбассе. Уже тогда он думал о том, что надо 
донести максимально, до максимального количества россиян эту информацию. Потому что если россияне, думал он, узнают о том, что войска на самом деле есть в Украине, а они выступают против этого, то это может повлиять на рейтинг Путина. Потому что очень важное и слабое место Путина – это то, что он очень следит всегда за своим рейтингом. Тот рейтинг, который мы слышим от официальных социологов, он вполне возможно, что очень далек от реального, но реальные цифры он получает. Я восстанавливал главу, реставрировал главу, можно сказать, о том, кто сбил Боинг над Донбассом. Я говорю реставрировал, потому что я старался эту главу писать на основании постов в Фейсбуке Бориса Немцова. Борис Немцов еще в первый и второй день после того, как был сбит Боинг 17 июля 2014 года, обратил внимание на то, что все крупнейшие СМИ России официальные сообщили, о том, что 17 числа, около 16.00, над Торезом, сепаратистами, был сбит Ан-26. После того, как выяснилось, что на самом деле был, был сбит Боинг, официальные СМИ развернулись на полностью противоположную информацию, стали сообщать о том, что это был сбит Боинг, и кто это сбил, нам неизвестно, но уже через несколько часов стала поступать информация о том, что для россиян информация о том, что якобы этот Боинг, он летел по похожему курсу с самолетом Путина, и, возможно, это хотели сбить Путина. А значит, кто хотел сбить Путина? Ну, конечно же, украинцы. Террорист Гиркин, который сообщил в своем Фейсбуке в 16 часов несколько, с минутами о том, что ура, мы сбили очередной самолет украинцев, Через несколько часов стал сообщать о том, что это был сбит Боинг, но в Боинге не было живых людей практически. То есть это какая-то подстава, это заговор американцев, возможно, с участием западных европейцев. После этого через несколько дней еще одна безумная идея о том, что это украинский истребитель, украинский штурмовик. Было очень много идей, и все эти идеи озвучили серьезными людьми, например, Министерством обороны или одним из самых популярных политических ведущих Михаилом Леонтьевым на Первом канале в Prime Time сообщили, он на основании поддельного, как выяснилось, снимка тоже обвинил украинцев о том, что это был сбит украинским самолетом Боинг. И сейчас, если вы пообщаетесь с россиянами, у них уже нету той установки которую давали им первоначально, о том, что это был сбит Ан и что его сбили террористы, ну точнее, как они их называют, повстанцы. То есть современное российское общество живет по заветам Джорджа Оруэлла. То, что было вчера правдой, завтра становится ложью. И наоборот. Есть даже такой довольно свежий анекдот. А ты читал роман «1984»? Ответ. Нет, не читал, я в нем живу. Факт в том, что о том, что был сбит Ан-26 и то, что сбили его именно боевики, 
сообщили СМИ, которые не смогли или не захотели удалить свои сообщения. Вы и сейчас можете зайти на официальные сайты РИА Новости и Тартас. Это крупнейшие российские информационные агентства, государственные. И на их сайтах до сих пор висит информация, что в 16.00 над Торезом был сбит Ан-26 и что сбили его боевики. Сохранился сюжет телеканала Life News. Это тоже телеканал, который очень плотно сотрудничает с боевиками на Донбассе. Бывают даже случаи, когда их журналистов, в кавычках журналистов, путают с боевиками, потому что они одеты в ту же форму, у них такие же каски. А вот Life News через несколько минут тоже сообщила о сбитом Ан-26. О том, что именно боевики пророссийские, либо российские, там это есть несколько версий, я не буду за следствие решать, кто это сбил конкретно. Но то, что именно боевики, причастные к гибели Боинга, говорит очень много улик. В нашем докладе перечислены и кратко описаны основные расследования, которые проводили независимые исследовательские центры, журналисты. Были опрошены местные жители, были проанализированы фотографии с места запуска, запуска ракеты БУК-М. И все эти улики говорят о том, что БУК-М был российского производства и пришел он из России. И совсем недавно официальная следовательская группа из Голландии, которая включает в себя следователей из различных стран, жители которых погибли в этой катастрофе. Так вот, эта следственная группа сообщила, что самая явная версия – это то, что Боинг был сбит именно буком М, который пришел из России. Но до россиян важно донести информацию о том, что вам уже говорили правду. Еще 17 июля 2014 года вам рассказали, кто сбил Боинг, кто радовался гибели 298 человек. И я считаю очень важным то, что Борис Немцов задумал эту идею, а его соратники реализовали. Спасибо за внимание. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Damon Wilson, Executive Vice President for Programs and Strategy here at the Atlanta Council. Thank you very much, Ilya Leonid. Thank you not only for your efforts to complete Boris Nimtsov's work, but for your own courage and leadership on these issues. I want to tip my hat to Natalia, who's with us, as well as, uh, as, well as Sergei uh, Alex Shashenko, who will join the conversation uh, after our presentation. What we've just heard from Ilya and Leonid is that propaganda has consequences. 
It's not clear whether Boris's plans to issue such a report played a role in his murder, but this possibility certainly can't be ruled out. I want to turn in this part of our presentation to our own report, Hiding in Plain Sight, Putin's War in Ukraine. As Fred Kemp mentioned at the outset, these reports reflect work that was conducted independently from each other. In fact, we were unaware of the efforts of Boris Nipsov, unfortunately, until his assassination. But our teams reached a common conclusion. Putin led his nation into war against a peaceful neighbor and lied to his people. So as we outline key findings from our work, I want to remind everyone who's here to join our conversation and share your evidence of Russia's war in Ukraine using the hashtag Putin at war. And to set the scene for our report, I want to turn to Vladimir Putin and his own. Finally, you asked whether our troops are present in Ukraine. I can tell you very clearly there are no Russian troops in Ukraine. I can tell you very clearly there are no Russian troops in Ukraine. This is Vladimir Putin lying to his people. In response to allegations of Russian involvement in, in Ukraine, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said earlier this year, if you allege this so confidently, present the facts. But nobody can present the facts, he said, or nobody wants to. So before demanding from us that we stop doing something, please present proof that we have done it. And when the US government did this, he retorted with the reply that these are just images from computer games. Russian government officials have sought to discredit uh, information released by NATO or the US government as a smear campaign. It's been part of a concerted propaganda campaign. It's hybrid warfare to sow confusion and encourage or, or justify ambivalence in the West's response to the conflict. Yet the evidence, as we've heard from our colleagues, is simply hiding in plain sight. So we thought the best antidote to this misinformation is simply to show the truth. So we took Minister Lavrov up on his challenge to present the facts. And what we've also produced is this body of, in a body of research here, we produce it for a more compelling reason. If the international community can't distinguish fact from fiction or chooses not to do so in public, it's unlikely to coalesce around an effective strategy both to support Ukraine and to deter Mr. Putin. This report is our effort to offer some clarity. We set out to tell the true story of Russia's war in Ukraine. This is no civil war. Rather, it's a story of regular Russian soldiers readied for combat at improvised bases along the Russian-Ukrainian border, backed by a steady flow of arms and equipment, and at times supported by cross-border artillery shelling. Our report documents each of these four pillars, each of these four elements. And in just a moment, I'm going to turn to my colleagues, Max Japerski and Alina Polyakova, who will share one example of each of these to underscore the, the findings of our investigation. We make this case using only open source, all unclassified material, and none of it provided by government sources. And it's thanks to works, the work that's been pioneered by human rights defenders and our partner, Elliot Higgins, uh, we've been able to use social media forensics and geolocation to back this up. I want to turn to our own tech-savvy Max, uh, Max to offer a word about the methodology. Thank you, Damon. Every, everyone shares. People share pictures from their family trip. People share pictures from the fun time that they have out at night. But they also share pictures from convoys driving through their towns. 
And we took that curiosity and which we matched it up together with the geotags that nowadays are on social media posts. We then used a method called geolocation to cross verify the geotags. And I'm now going to turn over to Elliot Higgins, who will tell you how we prove that a post was made in a certain location by using geolocation. This video is from a town called Zurez. This is um, earlier on in the route, and usually with this one, um, the person who um, posted this online gave us the time and the coordinates. So we actually put the coordinates into Google Earth, which you can see here. We kind of rotated the image to make it a bit easier, and then we went through different elements you could see and matched it off. So there's various structures that are visible, and you can see the road layout as well. There's enough to identify in here to completely match it up. That's correct. So as you can see, we match up the posts that people post online with the geolocation information, the geotag, so to speak, and we then go and geolocate that post to really verify that we actually write on that post. So with that, we were able to track um, military equipment in Russia and follow its path to Ukraine. In one instance, we found a howitzer in Russia near the town of Rostov. An ordinary citizen posted it online. A few weeks later, we saw the same very howitzer all the way just out in the outskirts of Mariupol being caught in an Al Jazeera clip. So you can literally match it like a fingerprint and you have undeniable proof that there is a Russian military equipment crossing the border. But just the way you are able to trace equipment, you're also able to trace people, people who post pictures of themselves, including soldiers. So one of the soldiers that we followed on his journey is Baltadam Bayev. We traced his path all the way back to his home, uh, to his home region of Boryate on the Russian-Mongolian border. I'm now going to turn over to Alina Polyakova, who will tell you more about how we then followed his trip. Alina. Thank you, Max. So from Budatia, where Bato lives, he traveled 3,000 miles to the eastern Ukrainian border to a training camp near the Russian city of Kuzminka. Training camps such as these have become the launching sites and staging points as the Kremlin prepares for its combat in Ukraine. And now anybody with access to just Google Earth can see that these camps are brand new. So for example, Kuzminki, the camp that I just described, this is what it looked like in 2013, complete empty space. Now just one year later, this is what Kuzminki, the camp, looks like now. We see mass buildup of military equipment, barracks, equipment, ready to be deployed for the war in eastern Ukraine. And we know that Bato Dambai was there. He took this photo of himself with a husky puppy, and he posted this to this social media webpage. Now, from Kuzminki, we know that Bato was then deployed for fighting in the Donbass. And he traveled all the way from Kuzminki to the Baltseva in February 2015. And it was at this very checkpoint to these exact coordinates that we can trace Bato because he posted a photo of himself again on his Kontakti page. So this is Bato, this is from his social media page, and the coordinates of this are geolocated exactly to the checkpoint I just pointed out. Now Bato um, was lucky enough to return home to Buratia, 
where he is a wife and a two-year-old son. But many Russian soldiers, as we also heard earlier, have not been so lucky. And indeed, many return home in zinc coffins under the label of Cargo 200. Damon. Thank you, Alina. So Max and Alina have just illustrated how Russia is at war in Ukraine. Russian citizens and soldiers are dying and fighting in a war of their government's own making. Indeed, Russian forces throughout the conflict have played uh, key defining roles at key moments, from Little Green Men in Crimea to the annexation, to seeding the first violent uprising in Slavyansk, to appointing the political leadership, including a known FSB colonel, uh, to attempting to trigger uprisings from Odessa to Kharkiv in an effort to create uh, Novorossiya. Um, and when that failed, deploying the, che the Chechen Vostok Battalion and amassing troops along the border in advance of Ukraine's historic presidential election on May 25th, almost a, just a year ago. And yet it was then, despite that, where Ukrainian forces began to take back territory. And Russia responded to this effort where the Ukrainians almost took back their territory by sending in ever more sophisticated equipment, artillery, tanks, anti-aircraft uh, anti missiles, including the book surface-to-air surface missile system that we heard about from Leonid, uh, the one that shot down the Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 on July 17th. And in response to Ukraine's counteroffensive, Russia resorted to artillery strikes from Russian territory attacking Ukrainian forces on Ukrainian territory. To document this, let's turn again to Elliot. What we were looking into were artillery attacks that were reported in the summer of 2014 against Ukrainian forces near the Russian border. There are many claims of these attacks coming from Russia, but there was no real solid proof. So we wanted to see if there was anything behind these claims. What we have here is satellite map imagery from Ukraine. So one thing that's very useful about Google Earth is they buy imagery from different dates. So you can actually go back in time and see what areas look like at different times of the year. And if we look at the July 16th imagery, which is available freely to anyone on Google Earth, we can actually see these crater fields. And this relates to a reported attack a few days earlier. We examined the craters and figured out the trajectory and we did this by using established techniques used by militaries across the world based off the marks on the ground. So what we were able to do was find the average trajectory and that gave us a bearing that we followed back into Russia where we found signs of launch sites inside Russia. We can see positions where multiple rocket launches would have been parked. When these things fire, they leave quite a significant amount of burning in areas where there's crops and grass. And there's only so many vehicles this could be, and many of them in service with the Russian military. So by examining the markings on the ground, we were able to determine the wheelbase of some of these vehicles. And based on the way they were turning, we could calculate that it was likely going to be a gradle tornado multiple rocket launcher. We then could overlay that on the site, and we could get a good idea where all the vehicles were positioned and which way they were firing. And this just happened to be pointing exactly to the crater sites inside Ukraine. In fact, in some cases, we were able to find examples where the launches had actually been filmed by people inside Russia. So, for example, we've got videos where there's the smoke from launches. Some videos, there's even the launches actually as they were happening. And these videos were all posted on by individuals on different social media accounts 
So we know they're from people, you know, different sources, and they were filmed from different locations inside Russia. And what's useful about that is it's actually possible to then find exactly where each video was filmed using a technique we call geolocation, where we use images visible in the video to match it to imagery on the ground. It was possible not only to find the satellite map imagery that matched the reports of the attack, but also videos showing the attack actually happening, filmed by people inside Russia. What we've managed to establish is there were a number of significant gains made by the Ukrainian separatists in the summer of 2014. Uh, many of these sites where there's huge crater fields that have been linked to sites in Russia appear to be linked to those gains. So it does seem that the, these cross-border artillery attacks, they weren't random acts. The suggestion is that these attacks were part of an organized offensive supported by artillery attacks from inside Russia. Yet after that attack, Ukraine's counteroffensive continued into August. And it was by mid-August when Ukrainian forces were on the verge of, of, of uh, taking over the smaller enclaves at the time of Donetsk and Lugansk that regular Russian forces in the thousands poured across to defeat, soundly defeat at that time, Ukraine's military. Russia stepped in to assist the so-called separatists when the Ukrainian forces were on the verge of wiping them out. So despite the Minsk ceasefire that then followed that in the early September, Russia's resupply continued unabated. Russian-led offensive began uh, to take the airport in Donetsk in December, as you'll recall from those viv vivid images. And then the effort towards Debaltseva began, a critical railway junction between Donetsk and Lugansk. And it was between, which led to Minsk too, but it was between the two Minsk agreements when Russian forces captured an additional 500 square kilometers of territory in Ukraine. Indeed, it was only after the February 15th Minsk agreement that the forces took Debaltseva. And since the Minsk II agreement, which is underway right now, we've seen stepped up heavy fighting uh, just as of the past 24 hours. If you look at our Ambassador Pyatt's uh, Twitter account, you'll see live video footage of that but also the capture of up to an additional 28 villages and towns during the so-called ceasefire. So what do we conclude from all of our work and our looking at this? And the report will go through each uh, one of these areas in far more detail with many more examples. But if you step back, for us, first, there would be no conflict in Ukraine today, but for Putin's strategy to provoke one. We don't have a Ukraine problem. We have a Putin problem. Second. The best antidote to this misinformation, hybrid war, is clarity. It's simply speaking the truth. To do otherwise only reinforces Putin's attempt to obfuscate Russia's direct role in the conflict. And that means Western leaders must counter, not abet, Russia's hybrid war with our own language, with what we say. After all, these are a prerequisite for policies that can better deter Russia's aggression. Third, the thing that I've really learned in this process through my colleagues is that social media forensics and geolocation analysis, it's a powerful tool. It's a democratization of intelligence gathering. Information once available only to intelligence agencies is now literally hiding in plain sight for anyone to see. And this matters because it's helped us overcome differences among intelligence assessments as we've seen around the NATO table. It's overcome some of the healthy skepticism of, uh, among our publics about intelligence after spectacular intelligence failures in the past. You don't need to believe any official. You don't need to believe us. You need to actually take a look yourself. So it's a tool that's out there that we actually don't control. 
it's a new reality in a world in which individuals and non-state actors can really play a critical role. But fourth, in our view, I think this report serves as a bit of a warning. What's coming next in Ukraine? We're not certain. But we have seen a pattern in which Russia has used the lull in fighting to prepare for a next phase of conflict. And what may be happening is Putin's creating the reality of a separate fighting force so that he can more effectively distance regular Russian forces from the conflict and make the case, if, if full fighting begins again, that this really is a civil war, regardless of its origins. It is peculiar that now the separatists have more tanks than France, Germany, and Italy combined. We shouldn't fall into the trap of ever thinking this is a civil war. It's also a warning of the impact of what is happening across Europe and Eurasia today. The power of Russia's hybrid war isn't limited to Ukraine. We see a concerted effort to use propaganda, misinformation, and hybrid tactics to undermine neighbors like Moldova, Georgia, Kazakhstan, to prevent the inexorable move of some of these countries to the West, as well as what we see playing out in the Western Balkans. But most dangerously, we see some of these tactics aimed at NATO and European, NATO allies and European Union members to divide them by exploiting divisions within our nations and among our allies. And perhaps an ultimate goal of undermining the solidarity that's at the core of our alliance. So therefore, we conclude this with a couple of points that we hope that these reports, that these, uh, these two reports that they encourage policymakers to really draw on these inf insights to inform the decisions that they're taking, to take off the table discussion of curtailing the sanctions uh, and confirm the extension in, of these sanctions underway on Russia until the behavior is reversed. And perhaps more so to galvanize the, a more comprehensive trans transatlantic strategy um, on how to support Ukraine and deter Russia's aggressive actions. But we do have to remember that Putin has used this crisis first and foremost, as we've heard from our colleagues today, to consolidate his own authority at home, whipping up patriotic sentiment uh, to paper over some of the Kremlin's own failures in governance, and therefore unmasking this deception to his own people, as our colleagues are doing, is a key part of the strategy of hitting back on aggression. And finally, I think we also must remember for us that it's the important takeaway to demonstrate a sense of solidarity with those Russians who are courageous enough to take a stand against the line of the, the government. It's easy for those of us outside of Russia to do this, but Ilya, Leonid, Sergei, Natalia, they put their own selves at risk by paying tribute to Boris Nimtsov by completing his work. It's a reminder that the first victims of Putin are the people of Russia who deserve so much better and as Fred began our conversation today, for so long, so many of us associated with the Atlantic Council have worked toward this vision of a Europe whole and free in which a democratic Russia would find its peaceful place, its rightful place. And I think while that goal remains further away today than a few years ago, it remains a compelling vision for the future. So thank you very much. We want to now want to be able to move into a conversation with our guests. So as my colleagues uh, change the stage here, I just want to uh, for a moment, we're going to be moderated by uh, Susan Glasser, who has joined us. Um, we're going to now shift into this conversation, and Susan Glasser is a, just a terrific colleague. As most of you know, she's the editor of Politico right now. She was the founding editor of Politico magazine, previously having served as editor-in-chief at Foreign Policy, where she had a tremendous record of relaunching its print edition and, and, <clears throat> and beginning its daily online magazine. 
Um, she spent a decade with the Washington Post as a foreign correspondent, an editor, and a political reporter. And she and her husband, Peter Baker, spent four years as co-chiefs of the Post-Moscow Washington uh, Bureau uh, during Putin's first term, uh, where the two of them authored Kremlin's Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia, and the End of the Revolution. She had a remarkable start to her career as an intern at Roll Call, where she went from being intern to top editor. Um, it's a delight to have you here, Susan, with us today. We're really pleased you're going to do this. Please join me on stage, and I'll invite our colleagues and presenters, uh, and Ambassador John Herbst, to, to join as well, who's been the driving force of the Atlanta Council's work. Thank you. Please, Damon, thank you so much. I didn't pay him for that introduction, so uh, you know, next time you need to be introduced, go for Damon. I, I want to thank everyone on this panel uh, for really an extraordinary presentation today, uh, and of course to the Atlantic Council for hosting us. Uh, you know, it's it's really tremendous uh, to see the powers uh, as a journalist, uh, you know, to see what an independent think tank is able to do at this moment in time. It's hard to imagine going back in time. Uh, were this the Soviet Union, what Kremlinology would have looked like uh, had we had some of these tools available to us. Um, you know, of course, uh, having worked in Moscow, as Damon said, it's, it's very sad in many ways that the, the reason for the report uh, would be, and, and the wide attention that it will receive, Ilya, is because of the, the death of Boris Nemtsov, who, who I knew and well and worked with in Moscow, of course. Um, but I thought we should just jump right in and start with something that Damon finished his presentation with, with, which is what is the rationale behind this secrecy? Why in this day and age have a secret war even in the first place? Uh, you know, Ambassador Herbs, I'm curious what, what you make of all of this. It, it seems, given how factually easy it is to, to disprove, it seems uh, almost odd uh, that Russia would uh, choose to pursue this course of secrecy. There are two large reasons why Mr. Putin's conducting a quote-unquote secret war in Ukraine. One was addressed by our colleagues from Russia, which is that the Russian people are strongly against the use of Russian military in Ukraine. So in order to sustain his position at home, Mr. Putin cannot admit to his people the aggression he's committing against Slavic brothers. That's reason one. Reason two, Mr. Putin claims that he is strong and can choose what he wants. But in fact, he understands that there's much greater power in the West, in the United States, and Europe. So he wants to conduct the war in such a way that people in Europe, and for that matter in this town, don't have to pay attention to the fact that there's a war. Because if they, if they acknowledge that there's a war and they see it plainly the way we try and present it here, that would require strong policies to oppose it. So he's playing both to Western weakness and the strong feelings of his own people against war in Ukraine. That's why he pursues these policies, and in fact, they have served him well. What do you make of the recent reports that there is a new uh, massing on the border of Russian uh, military strength? Do you think that we're headed uh, for another offensive? Uh, do you have any indication, any of you, on that? Uh, I think it's highly likely that we will not see a major Russian offensive, at least not until Europe decides once again this summer on sanctions. Uh, it serves Mr. Putin well to destabilize the government in Kiev by seizing small increments of land in Ukraine's east. That prevents the government in Ukraine from focusing on reform, on the one hand, and it does not cross a threshold which might provoke stronger Western response. 
Sergey, uh, just today, uh, it, there was a, the State Department came out and had a statement on a new Russian law uh, that would continue to keep secret any Russian military casualties that are happening in peacetime. This seems like a fairly transparent effort to uh, stop reports like uh, your report, like the Nemtsov report, uh, and to continue to uh, make it very difficult to confirm the Russian military presence in Ukraine. Uh, do you think that uh, people understand what is going on uh, with a law like that in the Duma? Have you found it very hard for Russians to get them to talk about uh, these deaths, or are they, are they succeeding in covering it up? Uh, you are very correct in this question, and uh, I have to prevent all of you that all we are talking today about Russian casualties in eastern Ukraine is under Russian secrecy. It's classified information. So please do not bring those reports in Russia. You may be punished and persecuted. And that's it. That's not a joke, unfortunately. And that is not a law. I have to precise. It is the decree signed by President Putin. So it was not approved by the Duma according to the legislation that's his authority. Uh, it's a funny story with this decree because uh, on the one hand, uh, there is no definition what does it mean special operations because decree says the information on casualties of Russian troops during special operations is classified. But in the law there is no such a term. So we don't know what is classified information. Second, if it is a secret operation, a special operation in Ukraine with the use of Russian military troops, this should be approved by the Federation Council, by the upper chamber of the Russian parliament that was not done. So I, I seriously do not believe that this uh, decree will be used against us, against Russian mass media who have, who have understanding of the legislation, who have uh, rather good lawyers and who have support in, in the public opinion. I think that that is a decree to uh, make, make fear for ordinary Russian people, for the relatives of uh, those uh, young men who are uh, lo losing their lives in Ukraine. Who, who are losing their uh, who are casuals. And uh, in fact, uh, we know very well that at the moment, Russian authorities just bribing them. They pay them amount from one to two or three million dollars, uh, three million rubles per, per each person, and people kept silent. They forget about, about their sons, about their husbands, <coughs> about their brothers. And it's, it's a, pain, a painful story, but we believe that if this war continues, and if the number of casualties is growing, of course, it will not be possible to hide this information. And this, that this decree will be used as an instrument to prevent people to disperse information, to share their knowledge, just for ordinary people, but not for mass media. Mm -hmm. Ilya, was it very difficult uh, to get uh, the uh, information into the report from uh, the different soldiers' families? Were people willing to cooperate? It was very difficult because uh, the people asked cared very much. Uh, Nemtsov was started uh, to work with his family since uh, we print uh, uh, Nemtsov's, uh, I don't know how to say it in English, uh, notes, yes, Nemtsov's notes. It's in our report. Uh, mm -hmm. He made this note just uh, uh, maybe one week before his murder. Mm -hmm. Trying to find an English version, it's more difficult than in Russian. Uh, he made this note by his hand mm -hmm. uh, because he was afraid that it's, uh, someone can listen and uh, he, made a, he made a note. Uh, there are a 17 soldier, uh, families of uh, Russian soldiers who were killed in Ukraine asked me to help but they 
scared to talk. Scared to talk. And that was true because uh, we started to work with these sources mm -hmm. by Nemtsov. Mm -hmm. So you had access yes, to the yes, sources, to yes, the family. Yes, we, we called them, these people, we met with them. And uh, the problem was, uh, the problem with these soldiers was uh, uh, before they go into Ukraine, uh, the uh, generals asked them to fire from army formally. Uh, just to, uh, if, if they will get or dead in Ukraine, formally, they are not soldiers. Mm -hmm. And uh, generals, commanders uh, told them uh, that if, someone, if something will happen with you, your families will get the money as a compens comp compensation. compensation. Mm -hmm. And that was lie. The people dead, the soldiers were killed, and families didn't get money. And they asked Nemtsov and other politicians to help to pressure on uh, the Ministry of Defense to get this money. Mm -hmm. And that's why these people, these families, called to Nemtsov. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were really scared to tell this in public. And how do you, how you, you, can, you, can, you can imagine that after Nemtsov's murder, they didn't became more brave. Mm -hmm. But we called of this, with these families, we uh, collect the information and we use the information in this report. Yes, thank you, Sergey. Uh, this is Nimtsov's, uh, Nimtsov's notes made by his hands, scared to talk. Speaking of uh, fear and intimidation, uh, I, I wonder if you can update us with what you know about uh, your colleague Vladimir Karamursa, who has reportedly been poisoned uh, and who also had been working uh, with Nemtsov. And, uh, I can tell you that Nemtsov was uh, a cross, uh, the cross uh, godfather. 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 Yeah, yeah. godfather, godfather mm -hmm. of uh, uh, Karamurza's daughter. Mm -hmm. They were really close. They were close. They were really close. And uh, uh, Karamurza, it was just personal drama, personal strategy for Karamurza about Nemtsov's murder. You know, for many people, for millions of people in Russia, in all over the world, it was personal strategy. Mm -hmm. But uh, for Vladimir Karamurza, it was really, really personal strategy because they, was, they were really close. And he is in the hospital now and is yes. poisoned. Yes, uh, he's in a Moscow hospital and uh, uh, the medical staff from Israel came to Moscow and they're trying to uh, understand, is it possible to uh, transportate Karamurza from Moscow to Israel clinic? But we, have, we still have no information about this. Uh, they said just that he's in a critical situation because uh, all his body completely full of poison, and uh, his organs stopped to work, and uh, he's just now in uh, medical, medical coma. And it, it, I don't know what to say. It, it's, it's crazy because, you know, it's, uh, many people believe that after Nimtsov's, Nimtsov's murder, for a long time uh, it's be safe in opposition because they are not crazy and uh, after Nimtsov's murder, they will stop all this aggression. And uh, now we have, a, we have an answer to this question. Mm -hmm. 
the initial information from this Israeli doctor is that uh, Vladimir, if it if it happens, not not it's no, it's no occasion, uh, took a strange combination of multiple medicines altogether. So that's that's the medical effect of what's going on with his body. With his, it's very strange. Yeah, the first information was it was bad yogurt. Mm -hmm. Bad yogurt. Bad yes. yogurt. Yes. yes. Avoid yogurt at all costs. Uh, I think is the, the thing. Now it's it's really it's an extraordinary uh, moment again. It's 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 so unusual to have these multiple uh, poisonings. Of course, this this has happened not not once but more than once in recent years. Um, what do you think? Was there anything, I want to ask everyone this actually, what was the most surprising thing that you learned in doing this report? Some fact or information, something that you, you didn't expect to know uh, in this? Damon, do you want to start? In part, I was surprised by actually how much is out there. And part of that is actually the problem, because as you see, there's so much on social media that it and you, if, you, if you do Twitter and Instagram and you are active on these social media platforms, um, you'll see a lot of uh, trolls. You'll see a lot of uh, reaction to anything about Ukraine that sort of presents an opposite, uh, opposite perspective. Um, images of uh, so-called Ukrainian fascist forces, uh, the famous story of crucifying a, a, a young boy. So there's a lot out there which is a tactic to sort of blur the picture, muddy the waters and flood the space. And so if you're looking, how do you know what's real, what's not real? It's, you know, yeah, there are a lot of images out there that look like Russian forces are in Ukraine, but there's a lot else out there. And so what struck me was how much was out there in such a way that you could actually begin to systematically peel that back. You could actually begin to systematically sift through that and be able to piece together completely independent, separate pieces of information to begin to verify and corroborate. And it takes this muddiness of everything you see, the chatter, the noise on Twitter, on, on Instagram, on Facebook, and it was the ability to actually take uh, pieces to, to underscore the facts that uh, Russian forces were there. And that was, frankly, quite a bit of a learning curve for me. We've got a pretty savvy social media team here, uh, but this whole process sort of took it to a new level. Sergey, what did you learn that you didn't expect to learn uh, from these reports? Uh, I, following Damon, I would not like to repeat that nothing ha can be hidden at the moment. Mm -hmm. So in the current world, you cannot hide. Being the very powerful state, you cannot hide information. So everything is, will be evident. But I was really surprised after the report was published. Because uh, I stay here in Washington, and during 10 days, I was receiving three to four calls from all over the world. Please help us to understand. Explain us how you got to your conclusion, how you work on these reports, starting from Washington, New York, London, Paris, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and many other cities in Russia. Sometimes, sometimes I, even, I never visited those cities. I didn't know about their existence, but people called me and finally found me. And that was the interest in the Russian society, in the international community, on, the, on this report on its conclusion, how, uh, how trusted it can be. That's what that was, imp was most impressive for me. May I just uh, give you a couple of words? Uh, when we made the first presentation in Moscow, it was about 200 uh, journalists, and it was 42 uh, telecameras. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you think, how many cameras was from Russia, mm -hmm. from these 42 cameras? Two. And did they show a report? Uh, yes, based on only two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ambassador Herbst. Well, 
I'm, I'm not sure that anything became newly evident to me as a result of this report. Uh, although I agree with Damon that the, the amount of information is staggering. But well, what comes, what hits home is the fact that despite all this information, despite these new efforts and these reports, there still is a large group of doubters. And I think that has a lot to do with their own psychological state of mind. They don't want to accept the unpleasant reality of a major nation at war in Europe. And that's the reality we have to bring home to them so that we can adopt the right proper responses. Damon, you served inside uh, the US government uh, at a time when we didn't really have as widely democratized these tools. Uh, obviously, I think there was some version of this that the intelligence agencies had. Why has the US government, or European governments for that matter, why have they not been more aggressive, do you think, in presenting this information? Why, you know, there's been reports, of course, that Secretary Kerry has privately shown evidence. NATO headquarters has released various photos at various times. Uh, they have not produced anything uh, like this. Why is that, do you think? There are a couple factors. I mean, first, you have to remember that we really did have a resource issue when I was in government. Um, I was confronted with the reality that we really made a good commitment of priorities to move intel assets more towards the Middle East, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we had a very different perspective of the relationship we were building with Russia. And so you, it's, it's sometimes assumed that we had everything. And I think it's important to remember how we prioritized our resources because of what we th where we thought we were going in Russia and the challenges we were facing elsewhere. Um, uh, the second part is I have a lot of sympathy. I've talked to many of my colleagues who are working these issues. Um, and the ability to release anything from, particularly if it does come from classified sources, um, is pretty torturous. And so you can miss the bubble. You miss the news cycle. Uh, and so I think the, I think the administration, I think uh, General Breedlove, I think NATO headquarters has actually done a pretty good job of putting out information, of making the case and retorting. But what we've also seen is that there's a jaded public. These are government, these are government sources. We've gone through the Iraq experience. Um, and there is some value to this not being from the U.S. government or not being from any government for that matter. Um, so I think, uh, I think they've made good strides towards that. Uh, but I think they also recognize that there is the power to have of ind independent voices to speak out on these issues. I feel like Ambassador Herbst wants to say something on this point. <laughs> <laughs> I'll add only one point. Uh, I think if you consider what's happening in Ukraine to be only a regional crisis, you don't want to help bring information out publicly which contradicts that. And if you understand what's happening in Ukraine, in fact, is a, an example of a, one of the world's two great nuclear powers wanting to rewrite the political order, so a global crisis of the first order. If you uh, don't understand that, you will not put forward the effort you need. So I think we see an absence of clarity on the fact side, which mirrors um, an insufficient policy on the policy side. I do want to make sure we get to questions. Everyone's been so patient here. So if you have your questions in mind, we have some microphones here in the room. Please identify yourself, and please make sure it's a question. Uh, thank you. So we can get to as many people as possible. Sir, on the end there. Quick, quickly, um, could you talk a little? Can you tell us who you are? Garth Trinkle, Washington, DC, independent. Uh, my question is for the two U US citizens on, on the panel with all respect for the others. Did something happen in August of last year during the Russian, the Russian military offensive in 
eastern Ukraine that was not as well captured by the tools of geolocation and uh, the forensic Sherlock Holmes. There's, there seems to be, you have four points in, in your, in your uh, study, and then there seems to be a little bit of a gap at the most important Russian push in, into eastern Ukraine. Thank you. There was definitely a very massive Russian offensive operation during that time, between mid-July and, and August. And I, I'm afraid what we saw in the presentation mostly of our Atlantic Council report is evidences from the social networks. When it is massive offensive, soldiers, they have no time to make pictures, selfies, and so on. They are worried with some other problems. So I think it's much less information this type, of this type you may find in social network. Second, I, I appreciate efforts of our colleagues because it's very resource consuming. You, you, can, you underestimate, yes, there is a lot of information in social networks, but you need a lot of time, a lot of stuff, a lot of money to discover all those facts. So if you are ready to provide some money, we are ready to continue our investigation. <laughs> and to check it. Let's get some more questions. In all the way in the back, ma'am. Yeah. Hello. Maria Morton, I have a question for Mr. Yashin. Я по-русски спрошу. Вы говорили о состоянии, вы говорили о том, что вы обращаетесь и хотите обратиться к российскому обществу. Я хотела бы узнать, по вашему мнению, о состоянии российского общества на сегодняшний день. Вам это виднее изнутри, вы живете в России, вы работаете в России. Сегодня я совершенно случайно увидела картинку, опрос по Немцову в социальной сети, где был задан вопрос, вам жалко Немцова? Да, совершенно такой простой на эмоциональном уровне вопрос. Две тысячи человек ответили нет, тысячи человек ответили да, где-то 500 человек воздержались. Вот мне хотелось бы узнать ваше мнение о том, ну почему это происходит, откуда эти тенденции в российском обществе, результат ли это пропаганды постоянной, да, того, о чем говорят по телевидению, или есть какие-то другие причины. Большое спасибо и огромное вам спасибо за все, что вы делаете, вам всем огромное спасибо. Спасибо вам за вопрос, я с вашего позволения тоже отвечу на русском. Российское общество находится в крайне непростом психологическом состоянии. Политологи, как правило, называют такое состояние постимперским синдромом. Это что-то вроде фантомных болей. Когда у человека отрезают руку, иногда бывает, что эта рука продолжает болеть. Российское общество испытывает примерно такие же ощущения в связи с утраченной империей. И значительная часть моих сограждан испытывает такие фантомные боли в связи с тем, что, как им кажется, у них отобрали великую страну. И Путин очень тонко играет на этих чувствах наших сограждан. Он дает им ощущение, что воссоздает империю. Проблема заключается в том, что никакую империю Путин не воссоздает. Путин ведет себя очень агрессивно, но в то же время у Путина есть только две главные ценности – это власть и деньги. Вот у нас есть с Сергеем наш соратник, коллега Андрей Пиантковский, это российский писатель, оппозиционер. Он очень четко и точно 
охарактеризовал суть путинского режима. Я могу только подписаться под его словами. Путин хочет править как Сталин, но жить при этом хочет как Абрамович. Понимаете? Что же касается российского общества, то его продолжают травмировать. И Путин провоцирует рецидив этой травмы раз за разом. И наша задача разоблачать путинское вранье. Потому что даже сторонники Путина, видя его неискренность, видя лживость этого режима, разочаровываются в нем. И несмотря на все вот эти вот опросы, несмотря на все эти негативные тенденции в российском обществе, для нас очень важно показать российскому обществу цивилизованную альтернативу. И мы верим, что эта альтернатива может стать привлекательной для российского общества. Альтернатива — это цивилизованная европейская держава, которую не боятся, но уважают. Вот в такой стране мечтал Немцов. We don't know how much, 25, 27, maybe 30 million people, and nobody is worried trying to understand this figure, to precise it. Yeah, and uh, that's, uh, that's the issue, that's the issue. People are not worried, one man died, what's the problem? Who is Nemtsov? I never heard about him. I, I forgot, yeah, I saw him 20 years ago, he died, he was killed, what's the problem? That's it. Unfortunately, that's the historical heritage as well. Thank you. Now, we're almost out of time, so we have time for hopefully a couple more questions at most. I have one here up in the front. Thank you, Tamori Yakubashvili. Uh, uh, congratulations both with the terrific report, report but uh, we all know that publishing report is not enough. You have to disseminate. How are you going to do it? Uh, both, actually, the Demso report and um, Atlantic Council report. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks to many of you, if you're using hashtag Putin at war, before we walked into this room, we were at 29 million Twitter impressions because of the advanced promotion around uh, the release of both of these reports. Um, you in this room are quite committed to this, but you're a small audience. We're aiming for, obviously, a much, much larger audience. So. Given this is drawn on social media, we've gone on offense on social media. Working with our uh, Russian colleagues, we actually created the Putin, Putin at War hashtag, launched it on the same day as the Moscow release of the Nimtsov report as a way both to galvanize more evidence um, for folks to share more evidence of that hashtag, but also to begin a dissemination process for both. Um, at the same time, uh, we have been, ours is being translated into to Russian. Uh, we'll be following up with uh, a, a conference in Berlin, uh, a rollout in Poland, uh, trying to hit a series of targeted areas. We've been requested already to, to prepare another one in French. Um, so our team, uh, I'm going to look at Max and Alina, uh, have been really on offense sort of pushing this out. Uh, we've got more work to do because I think that point is exactly right. We want to help shape in an English language area here. I think the bigger challenge is hitting a Russian-speaking audience is one that we've been working on, and I'll defer to my colleagues to pick that up. 
Yeah, Ilya, can you tell us or Sergey a little bit about how well distributed your report is inside Russia today? Uh, now we print the small uh, number of uh, our reports. It's about only 2,000, and it's just for uh, presentations in uh, Russian cities. We made a presentation in uh, Moscow, two presentations. We made a presentation in St. Petersburg, and uh, we made the presentations in two cities very important uh, for Boris Nemtsov. In uh, Nizhny Novgorod, Nemtsov was the first uh, uh, elected, democratically elected, uh, the governor of uh, Nizhny Novgorod region. And we made a presentation in Yaroslavl. Uh, Nemtsov was elected as a member of the local parliament in Yaroslavl region. But we have a big plans. We have, we're going to organize a presentation in uh, Chelyabinsk, in Novosibirsk, in Kostroma, in Chibaksare. And uh, in this period, we're trying to collect money in internet to print uh, the big number of uh, these reports. Uh, now we collected about one million rubles in these two weeks. We collected about two million rubles, and we believe that we can collect more. Uh, we have problems, to be honest, with uh, with this uh, with this work. Uh, for example, the PayPal has blocked our account and uh, do not work with us because of political reasons. They send us a message that uh, we're sorry, but we don't want to take part in political uh, projects of Russian opposition. Sorry. But we still uh, continue this job, with this work, and uh, finally we will print, print it, and we will go to Russian society. We would like to start the big national discussion. And we have no alternative uh, just to go to Russian streets, go to Russian factories, go to Russian uh, uh, squares, and uh, just shake million hands. Just talk to people like Nimtsov did, like uh, other political activists in Russia did. And uh, we believe that if uh, we uh, make this work complete, the situation in Russia could be changed. Thank you so much. I'm afraid we're out of time for questions. I want to thank everyone here uh, for coming today and all of these authors for these extraordinary reports. Thank you. Thank you. Thank so you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.